So if you would please turn to 1 John, the back of your Bibles. I'll be reading 1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Blessed is God's holy, eternal word through the Apostle John, to our hearts this morning. And because of that, Father, I ask that you help me unfold the text. Unfold that part of it this morning that I intend to and do so accurately. That we may, we may hear from Differing angles, the truth that sits right here before us. And that we will see it. And that we will love it. And that we will rejoice that we're being saved by it. To the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me start off with a simple question. I mean, there's, I don't know what there are now, six million people, six million in the world, or seven million, I don't know where we're at. It's a lot of people. But, let me just ask you, do you have a special love for your family? Parents, and grandparents, siblings, children, it's different than I think most of us would answer, yes, it's my family. I mean, there is a special type of affection, care, concern for my family. Next question. Is there evidence in your life that you belong to the family? Of Jesus. In other words, is there a special 
Family bond care. Service to other people who also belong to the Father and to the Son. Or is your idea of being a Christian, well, one day I, I made a profession of faith and pulled my ticket out, and I got a ticket in my hand that on that day will deliver me from hell. But, <laughs> forget about others. It's what I want, it's just me and God. I'm a Christian, I have the right doctrines in my, my head, and, and I have an agreement with those doctrines concerning the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and I can dodge hell by, by accepting Him, but my giftings, my time, my prayers, my money, my concern and worry for others in the body of Christ? No, I'm not too interested in that. I just want my ticket into heaven. If that is your idea of what Christianity is, what's being saved by Jesus is, then it is profoundly unbiblical and deceptive to your heart. And you very well may not have been born into God's family through Jesus Christ. This passage is a test to who is born again, or born of God, and who is not. So if you're there in 1 John chapter 3, we are beginning and picking up at verse 11 because we left off at verse 10. But I want you to see that what starts here in verse 11 is flowing out of verse 10. So pick up there. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's where we've been. Then John shifts gears. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then he goes on. Because... So verse 11, starting with word 4, means he's going to unpack that now. So, so now he's boiling this evidence down to the love of brothers, by which he means other Christians. And so when he's saying there in verse 10, practicing righteousness, hating our own sin, you're on a different path than you were before. You're walking in the light, not in darkness. You're loving righteousness. Oh, that's the general. And then, at the end of verse 10, more specific. Loving the family of God. 
So here is the Apostle John once again showing that certain truths, certain things lead inevitably to certain conclusions. He shows that loving one another in the body of Christ is the inevitable outcome of being children of God through new birth, through Jesus Christ. Throughout this whole letter, if you've been not catching it, I don't know why, but but John has this ongoing structure that he keeps repeating that goes something like this. Christian, live this way. Do it. Go on. You need my commands. You need to pay attention. You need to be spurred on to live this way. And then he goes on to say, oh yeah, and as you're living that way, that's the proof in the test that you are a true Christian. That's his structure on and on. Verse 11, look at it. We should love one another. In other words, go on, do it. And then he goes on to say, your doing of that is also the evidence that you belong to Him. Because He goes on to say, like in verse 14, that loving other born-again persons who love the same Christ, who, who have the same Father now, is the evidence that you have been brought out of death into life. So paragraph after paragraph in John's epistle is the principle we what we are not what we're trying to become but what we are inevitably will be to one extent or another expressing itself in our lives. And first we have to get that right. The main thing Christians have to concentrate on is growing into what they already are. Not go do it and therefore become a Christian. The New Testament doesn't call us to do anything as believers without first reminding us of who we are in Christ. Doctrine. Wow. Muscle. Doctrine is first. And I don't mean temporally here. I mean constantly, logically in our daily life. Doctrine first. Then practice. Then living it out. That's the order in the Christian life. Example. You are of God. Therefore, love one another. That's very different than love one another so that you will become of God. One 
is a butchery of the gospel. It's legalism. The other is the biblical Christian life. Practice. Decisions we make. Lifestyle. Those are ultimately our proclaiming who we actually are. That we are of God. Or that we are not of God. That's what John's doing in this paragraph. That's what he's been doing so far up to this point in this letter. And he will continue to do. That's his structure. Now, we're going to spend at least two weeks in this passage. Next week, I'm going to do what I'm normally doing. We're going to just look at the structure, watch the flow, follow his flow, deal with the whole passage as a whole, and we will be concentrating more on what is that loving others practically? How does that look? What does it look like? That's next week. But this week, I just want to concentrate on where does that come from? In other words, the source of that. The foundation of that. In other words, this week, we're just going to talk about the root. Where life is coming from under the ground there. Next week, we'll concentrate more on the fruit of loving each other. So this week, the root. I can just phrase it this way. What does it mean to be Christian. And before you can see the fruit out there, loving one another, okay, but back down to the root, under the ground, what is that? In other words, what is happening in those persons who are Christians? What is the foundation? What is the source on which this new life of loving the brothers is built? It's flowing from. In this passage, there's three answers. But it's really not three because he doesn't mean, oh, you've got to have one and then you add to it two. And add to it. No. There, there, it's really one thing, but he says it in three ways. And the first is where we'll spend most of our time. What a Christian is, is somebody who has been brought out of death into life. And then he goes on to say, well, what that really means is you've been born of God. You weren't of God, now you are of God. And then thirdly, he says, what that means is that eternal life, you know, that is God's life, eternal life is dwelling in you. So, let's go first where we're going to spend most of our time. Start with verse... When you see it, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He did not say, 
We have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. No, 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 no. We know that we have passed out of death into life because it's evidenced by we love the brothers. So look at the root. Forget about the fruit at the moment. This means, according to the Apostle John, being a Christian is nothing less than a person who has been dead and then they were brought out of that death into life. A Christian is not equal to a churchgoer or a church member or a goody two-shoes or an empty profession of belief in Jesus. It doesn't equal a Christian. But it is a person who is passed out of death into life. This is a profound and a central statement of Christianity. We have been removed into life, according to John. Now, that right there I'm alive. I've been moved into life. Something's happened to me that really doesn't make much sense unless we first understand what he means by out of death. We know he's not talking about physical death. John himself and everyone that he's writing to have been born of their mothers and are alive and have not yet died physically. But he says, you were dead and now you are alive. So this death is not this physical death that's approaching all of us. So what is it? According to the New Testament, Every human being, except one, Jesus. We have all, by our human nature now, since the fall of Adam, been born into a state of spiritual death. It's true of me. It's true of all six of my kids. As a result of Adam's sin, spiritual death has come upon the one human race. As Paul argues in Romans 5, sin through Adam, and in him we all sin, and death has come through sin in differing ways. Physical death is coming. But spiritual death is reigning according to Paul. What does that mean, therefore? That's the question. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? First, at its core, it means as centers of self-awareness, self-consciousness, made in God's image, it means that we, though we breathe, 
though we think, though we feel, it means we're dead to the prospect of wanting to be bent upon God. In the sense that I want it, I desire it. Nothing would be better. I delight in you, my Creator. That sense, that desire, feeling is not in any of us. Naturally, we were born into sin nature, spiritually dead. Paul writes in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, okay, stop, and by they he means all of us, here in context, the human race, And the vast majority of rational thinking persons always have believed in God or a God or God's knowing that it's really not very intellectual to to, to say stuff that makes no sense like there is no God or creative force. So, So he doesn't mean, oh no, you believe there is a God. No, no, no. Although they knew God, postulated God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in the thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened at spiritual death. See, spiritual death means the light has gone out. We were created in God's image in order to be persons the way that David will later say it in Psalm 42, is the deer pants for the water brooks of my soul. Pants for you. Oh God, okay, here's the natural state of all of us coming into this world. That has gone out. The light is gone. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 3. I have already charged that all men, all human beings, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We'll see next week when we talk about Cain and Abel. John's going to argue that's why Cain slaughtered his brother. You see, spiritual death means we do not know God. We're outside of His life. Right? Remember Jesus' prayer? John 17, 3. Father, and John records it for us. This is eternal life that they who belong to me may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' definition 
of eternal life. So if he's correct, and that's life, to know the Father, to know Jesus, then death is the opposite of that. You don't know him. I mean, you might believe that he exists, but you don't know him. You don't cherish Him as a child. You don't fellowship with Him crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. You live relationally on good grounds, separated from your Creator. That's spiritual. Death. Now, now another aspect of this Spiritual death is that we're dead to, therefore, what? The importance of decisions we make every day, how we live our lives in this world, and how we're dead to the reality of how that is connected to our eternal destiny. Spiritually dead persons do not know why God gave them life. They're not concerned, really about that stuff. Their interest is in this life. And they're dead. And so they feel that's wrong to not allow and to affirm people. Even if it's not my desire, the way I want to live, but it's wrong to not affirm. I don't mean legally, I mean morally. It's wrong to not affirm people in the way that they want to express their life. It's wrong not to affirm people if they decide to live in unmarital sex. Don't judge them. It's wrong to not allow morally and to affirm those who want to practice homosexuality. It's spiritual. Death. In fact, spiritually dead people say, yeah, we've been backwards for thousands of years through all cultures. Let's redefine marriage. Because this is it. This is all there is. How we live isn't connected to an eternal destiny. And the idea that there's a God who has impact upon how we do live and it reflects His glory or it spits in His face is irrelevant. Spiritually dead people, I'm concerned about that. If you feel natural desires, for the most part, In other words, spiritual death means those non-physical heart desire factory taste buds for the one true God and His laws has gone out. You have no taste buds. You're dead. Third aspect of this spiritual death is being dead to the true awareness of what sin really is. Sin is not at its core. 
how we treat each other badly. Sin does that. But its core is first our attitude toward God. An aspect, when a person is in spiritual death, they can't see that. They cannot see the gravity of sinfulness and its connection to the judgment that is to come. And because of that, not being able to see, there is an inevitable result. A certain way of living in this world. Let me just, I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. Because Paul describes it very clearly, right there, how spiritually dead people live in this world. Ephesians 2, start at the beginning, verse 1. Remember for a moment, he's writing not to the world, he's writing to those who have been brought out of death and into life. And you were, not anymore, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, we can say in this room, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body. Yeah, they're there. So they live by it. And we were by nature children of God's eternal judgment. Right. Just like the rest of mankind. That's spiritual death. See, even more than you think, well, what are you talking about, you know? I mean, Aunt Judy, she's a really nice person, you know? No, no, no. In spiritual death, this is what those who are in spiritual death cannot see. They are like, in relation to God, a piano that is way out of tune. So, so even though, of course, they may do the exact same good things that a Christian does and are really nice to neighbors and bring over gifts or help feed you when you're sick or give charity for those who are down and out. And, and like a piano, a, a, a professional pianist, could sing the piano and play a Beethoven piano sonata perfectly. He'd never miss a key. And the timing and the interpretation that, that he brings to it is just wonderful. But you have to hold your ears if you're God. Every act, every act, that one does in spiritual death is tainted with sin. 
Paul expressed it this way. Whatever does not flow out of and proceed from a heart of trust, faith is sin. And to top it off then, fourthly, spiritual death means not only saints, we have no desire for God. It's not there. I don't want to. We're, we can't see in spiritual death the essence of what sin really is and why it is horrific and how it's connected to an eternal judgment day that's coming. You can't see it. All this means this bottom line reality of spiritual death. That our desires in spiritual death are dead. I mean, it, I, I, you know, I wrote so dead, but you really shouldn't even you mean so dead is dead. How do you get deader? Well, because, well, sometimes we need that though, orally. They are so dead that we, in our state of spiritual death, are unable to wake ourselves up to new desires. We can't. Not in that state. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 7a. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we are all fallen creatures by nature. And thus dead to God. And we cannot set an alarm clock. I will wake up three years from now and change my life. I don't desire God now. But I'll choose to desire God later. We cannot get spiritual death. And this is where Jesus comes in. The Apostle John says here, If you, who were born in spiritual death, if you are in Christ, and you are no longer dead. You're no longer dead to God. To be a Christian means that you have passed out of death into life. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God reached out in mercy by the Holy Spirit and the hearing of the Gospel. And He said to you, if this refers to you, He said, Come forth. Now that's an analogy. 
It's what Jesus said to a dead body. Lazarus. It wasn't because He said it so loudly it woke Lazarus up. It's because when He said, Lazarus, come forth. When the God of the universe, even in His human nature, says that, nothing else can happen but Lazarus' soul being reunited to that body, poor guy, and coming out of the grave to die again. But spiritually, those who have been brought out of death into life is because God called you out. Come forth. You have to follow this. If what I've just previously said about the nature of spiritual death, that there is zero, not a none, no desire for God to delight in Him, then no one will ever be saved by the preaching of the gospel. Preach it. It means no one will ever hear the gospel and say, yes, okay, I will repent. I will turn from the path I've been on and I will come to your command. Come unto me, all you who are burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no desire to respond to that in a person who is spiritually dead. And therefore they won't. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know this is true by wanting people to come to Jesus. And you don't have the power that Christ has saying, come forth. You only have the responsibility to tell them Christ's words and the Gospel. And you leave that to God. So we're doomed. Unless God overcomes our spiritual death. As He overcomes our rebellion of heart by changing our wants. By changing our desires by the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what the new covenant is. This is the way that God says it through His prophet Ezekiel. About the new covenant will come and that Jesus shed His blood to purchase. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, God declares, Then I will give you can't earn it. Can't do X, Y, and Z to get it. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and spiritual death. I got heart stone towards God. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and I will cause you to be careful to obey my 
rules. There it is. And so Jesus, the one who will shed his blood in order to enact that promise, he said in John 6, and remember again, this is now the same guy, Apostle John, recording that for us. Jesus said out loud with no shame, no one, because he knows all people were born into spiritual death, no one can come to me unless Thank God Jesus purchased the unless. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then in that chapter, Jesus goes on to just really stun us. But there are some of you that do not believe. Then John inserts this. For Jesus knew from the first who those were they did not believe. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Spiritual resurrection from the dead. There's a physical one coming when Jesus comes back. But this here is a gift. It's not just an opportunity if maybe you can awaken yourself from the dead. It's a merciful gift. It's not peripheral to understanding the Gospel. Paul took this truth everywhere with him. So, so when he's writing to the Corinthians, years later he explains to them in 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24, we go from city to city to city as missionaries bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. He summarizes it this way. We preach Christ slaughtered on a cross. For sinners raised from the dead. We preach Christ crucified. And here's the result. It's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to Gentiles. Why? Because that is how spiritually dead persons respond. But he didn't finish there. This is the good news of what Jesus purchased. He says, that's true. He's just got, he's got the whole human race there. Okay, in Paul's mind, there are only one human race divided up into two peoples. The Jews and everybody else. And he says, no one responds and gets saved. And then comes verse 24. But in the preaching of it, to those who are called, so-and-so, come forth from among Jews and Greeks. To them, something happens. Christ is the power of God to 
raise him from the dead. In the wisdom of God. Or back to where we were earlier in Ephesians 2. I mean, I left off there at the end of verse 3, where every human being is born by nature as children of wrath. The light has gone out, and then Paul says in verse 4, but God, there it is again, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. You, you kids, you've got to tell me. Lindsay, you've got to look up. Was, it, was Edmund turned to stone? No. He wasn't. Okay, all the others that were turned to stone. They didn't get turned from stone back to life by themselves. And He raised us up, Paul says, with Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just deciding to live a better life or to have a certain moral code or creed that they then go strive to live by. No. It is a change in nature. It's a translation from the kingdom, the rule and the reign of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. It is coming out of death into life. That's the word of the Lord. And I, I'm going to say it anyway. Says so some of us are older people. The sixty-four thousand dollar question is: I don't know what we're talking about. I think that was the P. What was the name of that show? That was the most money you could win. No, you, even the old person. The sixty-four thousand dollar question is: How do you know? That you are in Christ. That you're in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light. That you have passed out of death into life. But one way to put the answer is this. It's the flip side of spiritual death. Of sin separation from God. It's the flip side of having zero desires to be filled by God. To enjoy God in Christ. It means that God's life has invaded our hearts. Has invaded our present remaining sinful nature. 
So, therefore, you've got to ask yourself the question. How do I know I'm in Him? Do you now? Because you didn't by birth. You might be five years old and answer this yes, or eight, or answer it no as a church-going person all your life as a 43-year-old. But do you now have a spiritual hunger for the one true God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ? Is He your treasure in the field? As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure, buried it back up, he went away and he sold everything he had so he could buy the field to get treasure. Do you know Him? Those who have passed from death to life know God. This is eternal life. That they may know You. So do you know Him? Those are the questions. See, the question is not do you believe certain things propositions about Christianity intellectually? It's not the question. The question is, do you have new life? Do you have new taste buds for God, for the truth of the Gospel, for obedience to such a glorious Father and His Word? Do you have a hunger even as a sinner, for righteousness. Only people who have been given new life see and hear and absorb and love and cling to and trust the glorious Gospel with all of its promises and all of its demands. Only people who have been brought to life because they're no longer dead. They're no longer dead to God, to God's truth, to God's glory. Just, just listen for a moment how Paul describes this from 2 Corinthians. God, who in Genesis and creating the world and the creation story, God who said, get it now, because His words produced it. As Jesus' words to Lazarus produced Him coming forth. God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. There it was. He is the one who has shined, shone in our hearts. Talking to believers. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, and we all, therefore... Remember the veil we saw a couple weeks ago is uplifted now. We're not blinded. We're alive. We all with unveiled face are presently beholding the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That is what a Christian is. That is the root. 
produces the fruit of loving one another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because there's fruit. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not have that love, it's not there, it's never there. They remain in death. Now, just briefly, I want, I want you to look up at verse 10 for a moment and look at the connection to what he's said with verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not, I notice this phrase, is not of God. Clearly, he was born of God the way he said it in other places. Not of God. As he was, something hasn't happened to you yet. You haven't come out of death into life. You're not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Other words, spiritual resurrection means you have received something of God's very nature. Absolutely. Because God Himself, the third person of the Holy Trinity, has invaded your spirit, dwells within you. That's why you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been born. Of God. Of the Holy Spirit. Which means you will manifest something of those family ties. Come next week and talk more about those family ties and the way that John unfolds them and illustrates it. But this morning, the reality of that kind of life that he goes on to say is the evidence. You've got to get this. That can never be self-produced. But, what John is saying, if you are of God, if you have been brought out of death into life, you will love those other persons who have also been brought out of death into life. To be of God means to have the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside outward. It can be mimicked. That's why it's not merely outward. Look at me. I did what she did. Look at me. And one more thing. John goes on to call that of God or being brought out of death into life. He goes on to say that is eternal life dwelling in you. Now by eternal life, he doesn't mean the future. I'm going to live forever. He, there's only one who possesses eternal life. Without beginning, without end. It's, a, it's God's life. 
that comes in a person to experience the very joy God has in God. That's why there are those who are created by God and God is everywhere, but they don't have eternal life in that way. You see it in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, see it? Just, just flip it around. John's point is clearly those who are born of God, who are loving the brothers as their evidence, it's there. They have been brought from death to life, or they're the ones who do have eternal life abiding in them. Christian life is not some great height of sanctification, more holiness. If I could just strive and reach that one day and try to get there, that's not the Christian life. Before we are told to do anything, before we're told, walk this way, we have, if you're a Christian, already been made something. We have eternal life abiding in us. We are of God. We have already been brought out of darkness into light. Or else, we are not yet a Christian. So yes, again, John has this way about him of being really clear. Loving righteousness. Even though you have desires for unrighteousness. Loving righteousness, practicing righteousness, and loving other believers are evidences of who are true Christians. Those are the fruit. They're not the root. And so first, until you die, always first, know and understand what Christianity really is. Know, Christian, know God's hand in your life from the moment He brought you out of death into life to the day you Physically perish. Know your dependence and your trust in His promises that He who began a good work will finish it. No, let me just give you one text. Just hold on a second, but we'll close in a minute. As Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, And now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think. Okay, got the pause. You can imagine what God can do in your life. Okay, now watch, now he continues. He does it according to the power at work within. Two things. If you don't know 
that you have been brought out of death into life. I don't know if I am saved. Two things, especially for youngers in here, you have no, maybe you do, but let me tell you, never presume upon the grace of God that you are being raised in Christian homes and brought to church every Sunday is a grace of God. It is a sanctifying, a setting apart of you. It's not an ultimate promise, but it is amazing how God has chosen to save so many by that process. And if you don't know and you're struggling with it, which is a good thing, then, by all means, nothing should ever stop you from begging God, raise me from the dead. Let me see and delight in you and never stop until you know. And then finally, let me say this. Are you a person who's aware at all of the mighty power of God working in you, pushing you, urging you forward, igniting a desire for holiness and fomenting a longing to know Jesus better? Are you aware of a disturbing presence within you that makes you uncomfortable in pursuing sin? Are you aware of that ongoing gnawing discontent with your remaining sin? Because of your faith in Jesus, then you are a Christian. And God's eternal life, purchased through Jesus Christ, is abiding in you. You have passed out of death into life. Let's rejoice now in song over this. Oh, what a mercy. Holy Father, your ways are, as Paul says, far beyond anything possible for us to come up with, for us to think, for us to imagine, but the real, and you will therefore forever be revealing your infiniteness and your kindness to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And for that we thank you. We thank you during this season that you've sent Him to become one of us forever. So that He will one day come back and complete this glorious salvation. You are good. Be glorified here in sovereign grace and all your peoples throughout this earth, we pray. May we be those who stand for truth and not cave to culture because we've been brought out of death into life. Amen.